0: (laughs) This is Sammy Terry,
1: and you're joining us at Midwest Monsters with Venomous Vinny for another horrible time together. And knowing him, you'll have many pleasant nightmares.
2: I'm one of your hosts, Grizzly Adner, and I'm joined by Professor Wagstaff, Venomous Vinny, Hot Toddy. Good to be with you again, friends, as we record over the wire. The pandemic's still going on. We are recording over Zoom, so please bear with us as the audio quality is lacking, opposed to when we're in studio. And by in studio, I mean my dining room. So, that being (laughs) said, uh, coming at you again with another round of horror documentaries we've done one before yeah we've done one right yep all right good 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 so um it's kind of like the mash but with horror documentaries and so uh we pick one and make everybody else watch it and so me your host of hosts grizzly abner i chose uh lost soul the doomed journey of richard stanley's island of dr moreau professor here I picked
3: Blood and Flesh, The Real Life and Ghastly Death of Al Adamson.
1: Venomous Venny here. I picked one with a short title called American <laughs> Scary.
4: And Hot Toddy, I chose Scrim Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street. Is this a? is this deja vu? I feel like we've done this before.
2: It's strange. <laughs> I feel like we have too. It's like maybe we had technical difficulties or something. I don't know. I don't know. Uh so, maybe there's a glitch in the Matrix. Uh, we are going to begin with Vinny's pick. So, Todd, can you give us some dates and details for Vinny's
4: pick? Uh, I certainly <laughs> can. <laughs> Just let me get a breath here. for The big title and directed by John. Wait a
0: minute.
1: <laughs> Oh, your no. audio. Okay, try again. Your
2: audio's is doo-doo. <laughs> What's he doing? I'm done. We're back. Yep. Son of
4: a bitch. Okay. <laughs> Vinny chose American Scary, which is 2006, directed by John Hudgens. And written by Sandy Clark.
2: Okay. So, Vinny. We are a mess. <laughs> folks, Folks, we're having a hard time this evening. My internet went out. We lost each other for 20 minutes. Bear with us. We're just doing the best we can. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not like sitting in a room with your best friends around a good soundboard. It's just not the same
1: so uh hey guys i chose this one tell us tell us why uh this this documentary is about and a nearly uniquely american thing that is horror hosting television horror hosting and i have always been fascinated with that kind of thing living in indiana when I grew up, Sammy Terry was the horror host in our area that would host scary movies on the weekends. And nearly every television market had one of these. And so this is this is a documentary about that phenomenon. And I had I have watched this thing. I honestly can't tell you how many times I've watched it. So I just wanted everybody else to watch it so we could talk about it.
2: Okay, I um, this is my second viewing. Uh, Vinny loaned it to me when he bought it. I made a copy. I, no, nope, I found another <laughs> copy of it. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's um, I don't want to catch Vinny's hands. But <laughs> so it's 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 literally like the only documentary on the topic, right? I mean, there might be some like focused ones like on particular guys, but is there, is there an over is there any other overarching ones? There's one that's commonly referred to as American scary
1: 2 called American. Was it shoot? I can't remember the name of it. Virginia creepers. And it's all about horror hosts from the Virginia area, which is quite a few actually, but yeah. that's the only other one that I'm aware of. That's not like spotlighting a certain host.
2: Yeah. So I appreciate that this exists. But upon a second viewing, I realized why it was just my second viewing, uh, and we'll talk about that later.
3: Uh, yeah, this was a first-time viewing for me. Um, I've always appreciated horror hosting, um, so yeah, I, we'll we'll get more into it. But yeah, first-time viewing, I enjoyed it enough.
4: Uh, not only have I seen it before, but I own it, and it's open. Hello! <laughs> um. Uh bought this a while back. I I wanna Horrorhound did like that big event with like all the horror hosts. Every I year. think um, I tried watching this documentary at uh, another convention but I was drunk and um, definitely couldn't hold my focus. <laughs> uh, and I think I saw that they had released it, so I picked it up and um I really enjoy this. Um yeah, probably my biggest disappointment, which I'll talk about when we start going, but uh, but I enjoy it.
1: Probably the same disappointment I had. Probably. So, well, Vinny, you want okay. to set up? Uh, it, it's basically the film takes you into horror hosting, and if you're not familiar, uh, in the late fi- early '60s, late '50s is when the major boom happened. Though Vampira mm. was one of the original uh horror host host hostesses in California and also uh Zachary, uh Roland to begin with in uh the Philadelphia area were very early like the first of the hosts. But basically as television became more popular as a medium, they needed programming and Universal Studios started to sell all of their classic original Frankenstein, Dracula, Mummies, all of these packages of horror films. It was called the Shock Package. And they made these available for purchase to television stations. So every local television station, which I'm glad that I am old enough to remember local television, because I think that now where there are adults who came from a generation where that wasn't a thing except for maybe a nightly news was the only thing that was really locally produced in their area, uh, so they they would come up with a. Every market ended up coming up with a, usually costumed host, to introduce the movies, to handle sponsorships, and things cool. like that. And also it was to – because these movies back then were still scary. Like Frankenstein was still scary when it was first released on television. So these guys were there to kind of alleviate a little bit of the tension uh, as people were watching them at home. And it it gave people a feeling of sitting and watching with somebody. So not only was it it local television to where each market had their own host that was theirs locally – so everybody had had an independent we all had the same experience nationwide for the most part but everybody had a different host so everybody's got their own brand and wherever you're from people think that theirs is the best right now the the ones that would be the one uh everyone would know would be like elvira uh joe bob briggs um and spingooly currently on me tv so anyway this is this just goes through and kind of tells that story uh there's still a lot of people who are doing horror hosting, uh, but on, on the Internet and have been for a while now. Uh, I, I myself was part of a, a show that was on public access called Freak House Flicks for a few years. And you can still catch that every now and again on the Monster Channel on, uh, online. Anyway, so I've, I've babbled on long enough. Uh, I want to hear from you guys. Uh, for me, I
3: enjoy it. Are you guys having a weird (laughs) echo feedback? (laughs) Yes. This is horrible. I don't know what's changed. Um, So, basically, this is a really interesting documentary for people who are already aware of... Todd's giggling about something. (laughs) It's so hard to focus right now. Is somebody sitting in front of a big PA speaker? (laughs) Okay, so, um, yeah, it's an interesting documentary for people who already have a little bit of an appetite for horror hosts, um, just because a lot of this stuff doesn't exist. So, like, I knew all about the early hosts, but there's not a lot of things that you can see them on now. Like, Vampira had a documentary done about her solely, so there's some of that out there. But, like, Zachary, I found particularly interesting, um, just because... I'm usually looking at pictures, you know, stills of him on pages. Um, So it's neat to see him talking in there. And you have a whole host of, uh, you know, people from the genre and especially from that generation um, that are contributing to this. Like Bob Burns, he's like, you know, one of the country's biggest monster kids. And so it really celebrates that era that era is why I'm here because my dad picked up shock theater and fell in love with those movies and then showed them to me as a little boy. And so it's really neat to jump around the country. My only complaint with it is structurally, it is too all over the place. I wish that they would have just stuck in regions and really spent some time with each one a little bit more focused because it just jumps all over the place. But Um, for people who are interested in horror hosts, this is a great resource. I'm glad it exists because it really collects a lot of these different personalities in one place that haven't been particularly easy to see. Like, Elle Byron is massive in terms of popularity. Her stuff is not easily accessible. You have to seek it out. Now, I have a pretty big collection of her stuff, but it wasn't necessarily easy to get, and I've gotten it over time. So, it's that's and she's you know one of the bigger ones so that just kind of puts into perspective how difficult it is to kind of dig into some of these hosts so it's it's a cool collection
4: um what i find interesting is um so to me i always just thought everybody had sammy terry so um you know you kind of find out like that's that's our uh host which is my disappointment of the of the doc i get that um I'm sure Sammy Terry had passed away or maybe had been sick when they were filming this, maybe. Nope.
1: Bob Carter was still around.
4: Oh, that pisses me off even more. But uh, regardless, yeah. no mention, no nothing. Um, it's probably because it's Indiana and they're like, oh, they're hillbillies. They don't have
3: a horror host. The weird thing is, though, they spend so much time in Ohio. Oh, yeah.
4: Uh, well, uh, that's what's funny is, like I said, to me, uh, it's always been Sammy Terry. So, um I didn't know who the fuck Doctor Shock was. Um, I have a friend that actually, when I um, was living in Springfield for a while, he would get the Indiana Channel, so he he knew what Cemetery was. Um, but yeah, uh, that's that's my biggest gripe about the the doc is is no mention uh, or love for Indiana, and you know this is pre Pence and everything else. So you know, <laughs> yeah, we always suck, but it just and,
1: wasn't as big of a market television market which is I think why it didn't get any coverage so I personally and this is getting into different territory I think Sammy Terry deserved its own documentary I um, I concur
2: um, I have appreciation for horror hosts and I've enjoyed learning about some of them and watching them but I, I it's not my background at all and so um, you
1: don't have any nostalgic co- connection to it
2: I don't. That's a big part of it. Yeah. Outside of it. That didn't have cable. I mean, so like I grew up with the farmer Four, so ABC, NBC, BBD, CBS, (laughs) and and Fox. (laughs) And so I had those, but I grew up on the Indiana state line. So we got Dayton stations and evidently those major Dayton stations didn't have the horror host from Dayton. Because there were a few in the documentary from Dayton.
1: I don't know what station Dr. Shock was on in Dayton. Yeah, so
2: didn't get that. So it didn't. Or Dr. Sammy Creep. Terry. I mean, yeah, Dr. I, Creep.
4: I I can't believe you didn't get because because my aunt lived in the country too, and that's her channel. Benny Hill would come on, and then Sam and Terry. Weird. And well, she, had three, she had three other channels.
2: Where Where did she live at?
4: Like Seminole road? road, out by you. That's weird that she had the, robbed she had,
2: She must have had a stronger antenna, seriously. They
4: probably had that child lock on your TV.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I know that my dad grew up with the host out of Cincinnati. Okay.
1: Was it the The, Kugel?
2: Yep. So I didn't get Sammy Terry. I didn't have a (laughs) Dayton station that had one. I didn't have cable, so I didn't get up all night or or Monster Vision. So it's just not my background. and So I appreciate it. Uh, My only gripe with the doc is to go along with Wilson is that uh, it had great content, but it was all over the place, and I can't stand a documentary that plays music the entire time.
3: Yeah, the music was too much.
2: Oh, I my God. And then at one point in my notes, I put, the music stopped, and they talked about something serious, and <laughs> then the music picked back up. <laughs> so I'm like, no, stop the background noise. So it – it's good. I was, I was reviewing it for Buff at the bar earlier because Buff hadn't seen it yet. I said, you should really talk to Vinny about it. I said, but really, uh, it's good content. It's just not a great documentary. I
1: still think Buff would love
2: it though. Oh, absolutely. That's why I told him to talk to you about it. Bob. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and uh, it
3: also has the benefit of not having any competition. So, I mean, like. If, right. And if nothing else, it's giving you what no one else has. So it's a winner for that alone.
2: Exactly. That's why I brought the point up earlier that this is the only one that deals with the sweeping content. And so to be able to get that uh, makes it valuable, you know, invaluable. You know, it's, it's, it's the only place you're going to get that.
1: When I was I doing it every year, Horror Hound does a Horror Host Hall of Fame induction for a handful of hosts every year. Uh, And when I was actively doing Freak House flicks with Brian Blair, um, we got to induct Chilly Billy Cardiel into the Horror Host Hall of Fame one year. And his daughter, Lori, happened to be there and accepted the award on his behalf, which was awesome. Tell people where they know
2: Lori from.
1: Uh, Day of the Dead. She was Sarah. And you know, Uh, Chilly
3: Billy from Night of the Living Dead. He's the on-screen reporter.
1: And also got, and he's also in the remake and as the reporter. And he was given a lot of credit for pimping this movie, Night of the Living Dead, when it first came out for George, because he had the local, you know, TV station, he could do it. Um, So one year also, uh, Stella Desire was there from new jersey who's in the documentary oh super nice lady tiny tiny ladies <laughs> real short uh i've met a lot of the people on this uh, halloween jack super nice guy count gordon a super super nice guy but yeah I, I, so after it was neat after seeing the documentary and getting into the thing and being able to go and then all of a sudden to just kind of be peers along with a lot of these people. Which I I get it. It it's not like they were uh in the magnificent seven, you know what I mean? But
3: they might they have been for the kids of They the were 60s. local hosts. Yeah. yeah.
1: And, and and to me growing up in my local market, Sammy Terry and Cowboy Bob, the the kids show host, those there was no difference between them and a national celebrity in my mind when I was a kid. It was all the same thing. It was television and they were there. But I really enjoy this documentary. It, it scratches an itch for me. I love the whole horror hosting genre. I have a soft spot for local market television that's just sadly a thing of the past now. And so I, I get a lot of enjoyment out of this documentary for those reasons. Definitely. Big Chuck and Lil John, by the way, are legends
2: oh, in Cleveland. I mean, to hear, <laughs> even to hear their voice work in like, you're like, I've heard that voice before. You know what I mean? Like just, yeah, they were, that, that, that story was neat to watch. And I love that they wore tuxedos for the documentary.
1: Cleveland is a place that has an extreme reverence for horror hosts and yeah. a long history of it. And like they still have Goularty fest every year. like it's crazy it's always the staying a, power.:
3: A huge part when we go to Cinema Wasteland, it's always a huge part of that
4: Yeah, I was yeah. trying to I was trying to think which, which host was that?
3: But, uh, son of Ghoul, son of the ghoul?
1: Uh, in Cleveland, Cleveland yeah. was Goularty. and then the ghoul uh, and the ghoul ended up in Detroit at one time and then there was Son of Ghoul, Big Chuck and Lil John which came from big chuck and hoolahan like it's crazy there's their current hosts out of there do internet stuff uh the mummy and the monkey they do a lot of uh facebook live hosting and things like that but man cleveland just hoard it's ohio ohio just has a ton of horror hosts
2: yeah and that's something i didn't realize till i watched this that they they consider ohio to be one of the mecca of horror hosts yep yep it's crazy
4: I uh I, I can't think that I picked up that guy's video. I try to pick up videos when we go to different places though because cause I don't know, I find it interesting and they're not as easy to get. Um probably mostly because of, of the, the rights to a lot of the films that they, they did. But did that, you guys yeah, no? Nah, I'm sure the studios like scrapped it, um uh, just kind of like tossed this out.
1: A fun side note, did you guys know that Vampira sued Elvira? Mm-hmm.
4: I have heard that. Which is funny because she herself was ripping off Morticia Adams.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well then it's funny, I got to wondering because they, they teased Stella and called her Elvira at one point, but who came first, Stella or Elvira? because uh, they're so similar. Like that's what's funny about it is that like It's hard
1: it's hard to say. Yeah, it's yeah. hard to say. I'm not certain. I'd, I'd have to
2: look at exact dates. I mean it seemed like they had to be contemporaries you know i mean like not yeah not real glaring that one came out before the other yeah they're uh sorry go ahead oh it's the last thing i was gonna say one one of the big thing i liked is that they just you know they made the joke that like to be a good horror host you need a cheap set bad makeup bad costume (laughs) like that's prerequisite and so that's kind of what was like I never got it. Cause like a lot of the modern horror hosts have got some pretty badass sets and makeup and costumes, but it seems like that was part of the gimmick for them was to like have fun with it and make it even look silly. Yeah.
3: It's like being with your friend down in their basement. You've set up yeah. something spooky. Yeah. Which I like uh, when Bob Burns talks about, you. you know, you've got a good horror host when you, you are excited to get through the next segment of the movie to get back to them. Yeah. And I thought that was, uh, the perfect description because if you have a host you're enjoying, that's exactly what's running through your mind. Cause typically you're watching public domain garbage movies. Now they were back in the sixties as much, but yeah. when we have these opportunities, it's typically that. And most of the time you're like, let's get through this nonsense so I can get back to the jokes mm-hmm. with the host. Uh, yeah. And then the other thing I like that they really focused on, cause again, uh, Tilly Billy was somebody I knew all about, but I've never gotten to see him host. I mean, it's always, you know, stills and secondhand talking about him. Yeah. Um, so it was neat to see him in action. And I, I like to clarify that, like they do in the documentary, that he didn't have a shtick in terms of he didn't dress up as something spooky. He rolled out there as your classic host in a suit. He was a local TV yep. news personality. And I love that he was like, I got to be me. That's mm-hmm. that's the only way this will work, and I think that makes him stand out inadvertently. Uh, uh, I was, I was going
4: to say earlier that uh, there is a, and there's probably some docs on a few of them, but I know there's a doc on, um, and I'm blank on her name, but Vampira. I have that uh, one. It's it's kind of a, it, it starts out really cool, and then it gets weird, but um, it's still cool to see, because I mean, she, she was an eccentric. Yeah, she's, she, she'd been someone cool to meet, so it's it's a bummer that, you know, she's passed away, but
3: <clears throat> um I've stopped by her grave a couple of times and there's always spiders all over it that people have left and kisses.
2: Nice.
4: Yeah, um uh, I, I I don't understand how cheap that this is. That uh you know there's not a big return of uh I, I know that there, there's a few that's like uh that's kind of like taken off again have never left. Like every time we go to Chicago, I was like, who the hell's Swing Ghoulie? <laughs> and there's like all these uh, like big events, and he's hosting like the the all the stuff at the the horror cons. And
1: Sven so probably the most famous at this active horror host right now because uh, he's, he's nationally
3: syndicated.
1: Nationally syndicated on MeTV every Saturday night. That's he gets to host like the the shock package. He gets to host all the Universal stuff.
3: I which... see people out in Los Angeles posting Saturday night about watching whatever he's posting that night
1: which is funny because when jerry g bishop the original svengulli was doing it in the 70s that screaming yellow theater the movies they got were not the universal package i mean it was straight turkeys just garbage movies and that absolutely was one that the only reason anybody was watching was to watch his stick
2: yeah um i also like that Two days after I rewatched this, I was at Goodwill and I found a spin shirt at Goodwill and picked it up for Vinny. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, so you, you said <laughs> you willed it into being. <laughs> yes, I just I manifested it into existence. It just some appeared. would say you goodwilled it into yeah. uh uh, um, no, uh well go ahead. I just want to say a real quick tidbit. Um I was not familiar with Zachary. And it was fun to piece it together backwards and to realize that that was what Rob Zombie was going for at the beginning of House of a Thousand Corpses. They've got like a fake Zachary, and it actually, they do a really good job with the fake Zachary. And so it's funny that when I watched this, you know, obviously years after I'd seen corpses and I was like, Oh, Rob Zombie was doing a fake Zachary, and actually did a really good job. What a fun <laughs> callback.
1: And Zachary was the voice of Aylmer. And brain
2: damage. Uncredited. You just damaged my brain with that information. <laughs> I thought no, I saw some blue light. I was like- going uh, to
3: say, to demonstrate and to kind of build on what Todd said, the horror hosting still matters because when we go to Flashback Weekend, they'll have some pretty big names there. None of them get the attention that Sven does. When he shows up, they've got a line wrapped snaked around the damn building for him so i mean that that shows you right there like people still are enjoying it
1: and that's because and you know sammy terry uh is on does he just did a facebook live show last night he's not on local tv but he hosted the brain that wouldn't die live on facebook um which now is uh sammy terry's now for the last 10 years mark carter bob carter the original son um but sviguli is like Sammy where there is this generational thing now. Sammy Terry's been around since nineteen sixty two. So that's how many generations of Hoosiers whose families have watched it. And Svengooley, you talk look at the market, him being in Chicago, that he's been able to reach. And Rich Coase, who's Svengooley now, he's been Svengooley since the eighties. Late seventies, early eighties. So I mean generation after generation of families have watched this show together with him. So it's really not that big of a surprise to me to hear it uh that there are that many people waiting to meet him at shows. Yeah. And he doesn't really travel much outside of that area either.
3: Right. It's just cool to see because a lot of times it feels like a dead art and that that's yeah. a reminder that it's not. I I think
4: uh Shudder, you know, did that just the one run of uh, Joe Bob Briggs and it was such an insanely popular thing that that it seems to be uh pretty common um the the last drive-ins now so yep he'll be
1: airing a valentine's episode next friday only on Shutter
2: (laughs) (laughs) all right any closing thoughts on american scary
1: if you're into that kind of thing uh horror hosting check this out you gotta check this out i don't know uh, we watched it on Prime, I think, where so we were all we all streamed it for this. Except Todd, who owns it. Which Todd, you could probably sell that for a pretty penny right now.
2: Now, Vinny, do, do you own
1: it? No, I used to have a copy that I forget how I got a hold of it, and I loaned it out. Never got it back.
2: Oh. Was it to Robert? <laughs> no. no,
1: it was not to Robert.
2: I I can fix that. Uh, wink i like that i wonder if maybe i wonder if the first time we got it was because i got it through netflix on disc for you i don't know because i don't know how i've I got remember. a copy i don't remember did. how i saw it yeah i don't know how i, I got a copy know. if you don't have a copy <laughs> well i had a copy but i, oh, I don't know okay how. you That's can make it. a copy of a copy
1: <laughs> Ooh, wink but
3: yeah if you got any interest or experience with horror hosts, you got to watch this. I mean, it is the only definitive thing that's ever been put forth. I mean, it's, it's a cool resource
2: for the topic. All right. Well, moving right along to my pick. Tadi, you got your dates and details. Ah, let me get a breath. Lost Soul,
4: The Doom Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau uh 2014 directed by David Gregory which we'll remember that name soon
2: yeah <laughs> boy lost soul uh I watched this when it came out because I was fascinated because I was one of the strange people because I was a teenager who actually liked Island of Dr. Moreau when it came out. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> this comes as no surprise to me. <laughs> I mean, it's it's no Congo, but I thought it was pretty cool as a teenager, <laughs> as a young teenager. Uh, I even, I had like, I bought like the H.G. Wells novel, and I bought like the Junior novelization. <laughs> yeah. Did you have the trap keeper? trap keeper? I wish.
3: You know what? Uh, you may like this version, but You turned out to be an all right guy, so we'll allow it.
2: (laughs) Look, for what it's worth, Isle of Lost Souls is a much better movie than The Island of Dr. (laughs) Um, So so I was immediately drawn to this because I was like, I had always heard there was kind of a crazy story behind it. And so when this came out, I was like, I got to watch it. And so I loved the documentary the first time around and wanted another reason to watch it and to make sure you all had seen it. Uh, this was the first
3: time viewing for me. This documentary has been on my radar for a very long time. It's just one I hadn't gotten around to watching. And, you know, the funny thing is, is, I've seen most of his movies, but I hadn't seen this. So I was excited when you picked it. It was a nice reason to finally check it off the list. And um, it's a wild one. Oh, yeah. Uh,
4: this was a first time watch for me. I've been wanting to watch it for a while as well. I I don't know what it is, but I, I love um I love like uh reading and 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 stuff like this where like uh, how a movie could have been or um or the original intention. Um, I remember when uh, Island came out because um I think I was still reading Fango pretty heavily. And it, it, it kind of reminds me of um Clyde Barker's Nightbreed where they kept putting coverage of all this cool stuff that's gonna be in this new movie. And then I go see the movie and I'm like, what the What the hell? Where's everything at? And um, uh, Dr. Moreau was nine. Was it ninety seven? I almost forgot about the movie. And then, like, uh, like maybe a few years later, um, South Park has this weird uh, (laughs) Marlon Brando and (laughs) like little person. Uh, I don't know. I remember kind of liking Dr. Moreau, but I had never seen the original. And after watching the original, it's it's hot garbage. And uh, I honestly can't remember anything about the movie other than it being.
2: (laughs) I think this came out in '93 or '94. Doctor Moreau. I was thinking it was late '90s. Hmm.
1: I don't know. If I only had a uh, device. I have always been a big fan of this story, Uh, much like the Hunchback of Notre Dame and things like that. I, I. Find certain stories that I'm attached to, and so I like to watch any version that I can find of them. And Island of Doctor Moreau is one of those stories. And I remember watching this for the first time, and you you want to love, you want to like it so bad, being me because you love the subject matter so much. And I'm a special effects guy, a practical effects makeup guy. I'm a bit, I'm real big into that, and so seeing a lot of this stuff was concept art and things like that though that some of the characters were a little too ninja turtles for me um but the movie itself just hot garbage just a (laughs) pile pile of doo-doo and we'll get into this more later but it really didn't come as a surprise to me when i watched it because i was an enormous superman fan in high school comic book wise it was after the death and all that so i did a lot of when I get into something, I absorb every bit of information that I can get. And I had read an article about working with Marlon Brando on the original Superman movie. And so I was not surprised to watch this documentary and find out a lot of the shit that Marlon Brando was, was trying to do on set because he is notoriously very difficult to work with and will do anything in his power to not work.
2: I was going to say, wasn't there like a point where on Superman he was like, why don't you just have a a toaster play me? He wanted
1: to have, at one point he pitched having a bagel in a suitcase play Jor-El because his logic was that he's an alien, so you wouldn't know what he looks like.
2: You don't know what an alien looks like, especially from Krypton.
1: And they're like, except that Superman's an alien from that race. But they always say he's brilliant once you get him to work. But getting him to work is nearly impossible. So anyway, sounds uh, like me. This is the second time I've seen this documentary. Uh, I think the first time I saw it, I was with Grizz when we watched it.
2: <laughs> ah, so I looked it up. Moreau came out in '96. So, okay. Um, Richard Stanley, young up-and-comer, uh, just kind of kind of famous for just looking the part, like hat and long hair and a long coat you know and uh, he had made a movie called Hardware which I have not seen and it's it, was, it was pretty popular and, and it was like man he was on his way up and so um, he was really fascinated by you know Isle of Lost Souls and other failed attempts to make it and so New Line um, was uh, wanted to try it again so you got Bob Shea and the crew from New Line and uh, Bob Shea always looks like your dad's recovering alcoholic friend in interviews. <laughs> <laughs> he's got like just his hair always looks wet and wavy. <laughs> and, and he's it haggard looks like,
1: looking. I, yeah, I would love to just pay for Bob Shea to get a shampoo. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and so um, they're wanting to make it. And they said, you know, they're so excited. They got Brando on board to play Dr. Moreau and uh richard stanley really wants to get this put together so richard stanley resorts to the religion of his mother and decides to practice witchcraft to uh to get this all approved and pushed to through.
1: manifest this for him that <laughs> killed me where he's he very nonchalantly says and at one point i resorted to witchcraft <laughs> which i was like paul's the- paul's rewind <laughs>
3: Which then begs the question, why do we not reflect on this when everything fucking comes unraveled for him? Why do we never either maybe
2: think about that or go back to it for more help? It's like, hey, dog, remember your witchcraft thing? It's falling apart.
4: I, I usually only resort to witchcraft when, when I'm burned at work and not, not to put a project together. But that's just me.
1: I, I only do it when I'm dying and I need to take over a doll's body. <laughs> strict, strict
2: need to inhabit doll's body rule. So they're they're leaning into this and they've signed Marlon Brandon, <clears throat> Bruce Willis, and can, can James. We, can we
4: pause there real quick? Yeah. I think it would be equally troublesome if they would have got Bruce Willis and James <laughs> Woods too. These are all troubled <laughs> like they're all wrong, egos yeah you're talking strong you ego maybe, maybe bruce willis might not have been so bad at the time i don't know
2: but yeah and so they're going into this strong and so james stanley who is a uh a britishman um richard stanley what i say james stanley <laughs> you did <laughs> it's been a long day this whole internet thing really <laughs> flustered me <laughs> Did we do intros? (laughs) Richard Stanley, who is an Englishman, um, they brought him out to L.A., and him and L.A. didn't vibe, right? Like, he's looking for fog and tea, and L.A. is sunshine and and smoothies, right? Yeah, it's like, we don't
3: don't need your kangaroo hunting hat out here, dog. (laughs) Right.
2: (laughs) So, uh, first thing to befall this film is that Bruce and Demi Moore decide they're going to go through a divorce, and and Bruce needs to be there for his kids, and now Bruce is out of the production. And so what does that mean? Val Kilmer is now in the production.
3: It's like they got together and was like, okay, we need a bigger asshole. (laughs) Bruce (laughs) Willis is
1: out. Kilmer is hot off the heels of Batman forever. (laughs) And is like riding the crest of the wave of his career right now after Batman forever. Oh, yeah. That's Think what's, he is that's what's got him arrogant as fuck.
2: Yeah. He's going to come in and call the shots. Oh, yeah.
1: I, w- then- I wonder how
4: many times he was like, I am the new Batman. And you only got to play, <laughs> play him for <from> one
2: movie. <laughs> <laughs> so then James Woods is out for whatever reason. So then they put Rob Morrow in of Northern Exposure fame. And uh, then they sign Stan Winston to do the the creature effects, which I knew would would draw Vinny in. Mm -hmm. And they bring in like an animal behaviorist, like this guy who's going to teach them all how to act like (laughs) animals, which I thought was a really funny part (laughs) of the documentary. (laughs) It makes sense. It makes sense, but it did the same thing
1: for Burton's uh, Tim Burton's planet of the apes. They brought in people to show the people how to move like apes. That's awesome.
2: I wonder if it's the same guy. Uh, So, so then uh, Richard Stanley starts isolating himself because the project almost starts to like supersede him because the studio is saying all these things. Brando and Kilmer are too much. And so it's all starting to, like, grow bigger than what he can handle. And it's bigger than his control. And so he really well, at starts, this like... Point,
1: at this point, Kilmer hasn't Kilmer also managed to get the role he's playing flipped?
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, anywho. So, uh, and then right before they start shooting with Brando, her, his daughter commits suicide. And so it just said that there were just all these bad omens leading into the film Val Kilmer is a major dick to all of them uh then there's the big rumor that and, and now also let's not forget that Feruza Balk was a part of this film and yes. she she really befriended Richard Stanley and stood by him and defended him and so it's nice to have her voice in here um, she
3: anchors this documentary
2: she absolutely does because she's she's like the only person you can believe you know what right I mean? like everyone else is so ridiculous you're like I don't know I don't know and then Bob Shea, always kind of reliable, but he's just a fucking suit. So you don't know if you can believe what he's saying. And um, so then comes the big story. One day, Richard Stanley snaps and he climbs a tree. <laughs> so that's in all the tabloids, all the, all the hot papers. And I think Feruza bulk says, that never happened, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Feruza, Feruza's thing in here is – she seems to be the only
1: person who has any sympathy for Richard Stanley in this documentary. Yeah, she's the only lens you get other than Richard Stanley from his perspective. She's, she's also, also just, the only
3: one that's not all about LA culture. Yeah, I think that's why she identifies with him.
2: She's not maintaining
4: a status quo. She also did not perform in the animal orgies on set.
2: <laughs> Talk about a missed opportunity. Uh, hey, so, <laughs> so then, as if. Stuff isn't going wrong. A hurricane comes, and they're filming on this island that they never really had any business filming on. They could have filmed on so many other places that would have been easier and more accessible. And so it's at that point that Rob Morrow of Northern Exposure fame freaks out and says, "I got to get off this island."
0: (laughs) So we we are all
2: Rob Morrow if we're there. We are all (laughs) Morrow at this point. (laughs) So Morrow out. David Thewlis in, <laughs> right? So we got all these changes. Um, and it, it's at that point that, that Richard Stanley gets fired. Like, they're just like, we're going to have to let you go, bud. Um, Feruza maintains that she's team Richard Stanley the whole time. Stanley says he got paid and just told to leave. He takes the money, but what does he not do? Uh, he doesn't obey the stay away from the set rule. <laughs> he doesn't leave. He goes missing in action. The people from the production don't know where he's at. His friends don't know where he's at. He's somewhere hiding on the island, which don't get me wrong. He probably tapped into some of his old money, and he was just staying at a a posh hotel somewhere nearby. But he wants you to believe that he was a caveman on the (laughs) island somewhere. Uh, And so at that point, Frankenheimer comes in to direct – Brando becomes super extra and starts making all these crazy suggestions like bagel in a suitcase suggestion. Yeah.
1: He like, <laughs> like favorite, when, he sho-
2: when he shows up.
1: My favorite was when Brando pitched that uh, at the end of the movie, you find out that Dr. Moreau is actually a dolphin.
2: <laughs> <laughs> he knocked that ice bucket off his head. And he's got a, a, blowhole.
1: <laughs> a blowhole. Oh my goodness.
2: <laughs> and, he's, and he falls in love with that 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 little that little person little, character. Who probably had the world smallest man at the time. everybody. Yeah. Right. Probably had the biggest ego, Todd. You're right. Because
4: well, he was he was insanely uh famous from where he was
2: where he's from.
4: Yeah. And well,
1: I like it when they said that so Brando makes the choice that this guy's gonna be in every scene <laughs> with him. And now Wardrobe has to recreate every outfit that Brando's wearing for this little guy to wear. I mean, Brando's Brando's antics as they start talking the shit that he starts like when uh, he's the one who decided that Doctor Moreau would be in those what, those white linens and have his face painted white when they said which made it really easy for Marlon's stand-in to be in a lot of the scenes instead of Marlon. Just, just a, a genius, no, but I terrible about trying to get out of work.
4: That was never discussed with anybody. He just showed up to film that way.
2: (laughs) And not to mention, he couldn't be bothered with memorizing his lines, so he had to wear an earpiece (laughs) and have his lines (laughs) fed to him.
1: Oh, my God. Like, And what's hilarious is you think about this guy that is absolute legend, the godfather, streetcar Name Desire, and then you start hearing all of these stories, and it's like, God, that's a lot of bullshit to put up with to have this guy in your movie.
3: Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, Lee Strasberg didn't teach him how to grow older.
2: Just got whew. bored. And we find out that ultimately Brando's doing a lot of this because he doesn't like Bob Shay and he's trying to screw <laughs> over Bob Shay.
1: The guy who's signing his check. Yeah. Like, God. And, and at this point, you're talking about an old man who is doing this to a guy who's signing his paychecks.
2: And so ultimately it all starts coming to crashing down. The the crew is losing it and they're They're just partying all the time. Like they, well, they, they have to sit through hours and hours of makeup and then like get bumped. Like, they're like, all right, here's six hours of makeup. Now wait, ah, we're actually not going to shoot that scene today. <laughs> I mean, they're all like losing their minds, Isn't it? <laughs> They wouldn't would go they to the say, set and they would
4: wait to see if Marlon Brando or Val Kilmer was going to show up, and most of the time they wouldn't.
1: <laughs> I like I also, it when they said, they said that uh, there was the day that Marlon wouldn't come out of his trailer until Kilmer came out of his, but Kilmer <laughs> wouldn't come out of his trailer until
2: Brando came out of his.
3: <laughs> oh, yeah. That is just ridiculous. Ugh. One thing I found really interesting, too, in this is putting John Frankenheimer in here against – This modern mess of a set. I mean, this guy's made legendary films, and you can tell he's just not cut out for this. horse shit, and that's part of the reason it just gets more and more out of control. Yeah.
1: Here, here's my question. Like, like Marlon Brando. We just listed some of his accolades. You can see why he might have an ego. What in the fuck made Val Kilmer think that he had the stroke to come in there acting like he was acting?
2: Vinny, he was in Young Einstein.
1: <laughs> Top secret.
3: Was it uh, Real Geniuses? Yes, yeah. <laughs> it was Real Genius. Young Einstein was yeah, something else. I think he's uh, always yeah, been bad. that way.
2: Baby genius. You
3: know, I, yeah, I think he's always been that way. Just one of That's those.
1: Unbelievable. I bet you he's got a whole
2: different attitude nowadays. I'd love to watch some the behind-the-scenes stuff and see how he was on uh, uh, Tombstone. I wonder what that was like. Yeah. Especially against Kurt Russell and, and Sam Elliott. I get uh, I one worry.
1: of those dudes would have punched him in his mouth. If he was <laughs> yes, <holding absolutely>. <laughs>
2: uh, so the crap that the, the crew is just out of control. They're partying all day on set. They're partying <laughs> all night in the nearby village. Uh, they partying in their makeup because they got nothing better to do as they sit
4: around. <laughs> all, well, that. That I seen,
2: all I could think of was trick or
4: treat where the kids go and they're like, I'm pretty sure that pig was fucking the coach.
2: <laughs> the <hot dog>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so then Richard Stanley shows up, they find him and they go ahead and give him a dog band mask. And he is on the camera. crew. Does, yes, The crew gives him dog person makeup and it's funny because like the, the producers and, the, and the, the other staff are like, we wondered what was going on because it was like 110 degrees and there was one guy who would never take his mask off. That's my
1: favorite. When they said they went over to talk to him. He had a different accent than everybody else on the crew. <laughs> That's my favorite part of the whole thing is he gets back onto the set of a movie he was fired from that explicitly says if you come near the production, you don't get paid for it and has the cojones to come back. And act and be in
2: scenes. <laughs> and he still has the mask. Man, yeah. that is, that that is, is the mo- craziest is punk- part of this whole documentary.
4: Well, I love that the, the crew went along with it because they're like wanting to see him. Just <laughs> the shit storm even like, they're like, oh, fuck yeah, we'll bring him
2: in. Yeah, because by and large, they liked him. They knew he was a guy that had problems and some of those problems are outside of his control. But like, yeah, they liked him enough to be like, yeah, let's run with this. <laughs> So, by and large, finally the film gets made. It gets abysmal reviews. Doesn't make any money. Uh, and uh, there you have it: the doomed <laughs> journey. Of- One of the worst movies ever made. They they yeah. say. Yeah. So that's that's what I got. Any other high spots you guys can think of? I how think. how have they not tried to make a movie of this? <laughs> right, make, make make a movie of this documentary story. Yeah, I'm with yes. you, Scotty. I think this
3: <laughs> shares the same charm as Best Worst Movie where you take a movie that you it's painful to watch and you enrich it because watching this made me want to go back and revisit that train wreck and I think yeah. that it'll be guess, more guess enjoyable yeah. when you do, because of this.
1: When you do, it's not going to be any more enjoyable. Let me Let me spoil that for you because I thought that the first time I watched it and then I went back and watched it and was like, oh man, this is
2: awful. Now well, I wasn't now,
3: expecting it to be good. Yeah. <laughs> just it makes it a more interesting
2: watch. To back up Professor's position, I'm just gonna say, would it be fun if the four of us were sitting around drinking, watching Island of No, if we were conversing
1: over the top of it and then laughing, yes.
2: Yes. Only like, if yes. I like got a do earpiece when- in
3: to tell me how to think.
2: <laughs> <laughs> like like we, we do when we watch Troll are- 2. Are we doing this? Are we doing that over Zoom? You know, (laughs) maybe that should be our next drunken commentary. Commentary for Dr. Moreau.
1: This podcast is now 50% vaccinated. So, (laughs) yes. Maybe the time is is drawing closer than we think. I even know it is.
2: That should be our reunion special.
4: Not only did I get my uh, two shots, I also got the the rabies one when I was there too. So I'm good. So you're perfect for going to the Island
1: of Dr. Moreau. <laughs> I would have loved to have seen some of the other, I, some of the ideas I think were bat shit that John Stanley had.
4: Uh, when, when he shows his concepts, I was like, where's that movie?
1: Yeah. But I, w- I would have liked to have seen a lot of that kind of thing. I would have, I mean, I could sit here and I would be here for an hour saying, well, I'd like to see it if I didn't, if they took what the vision was before so-and-so added their bullshit. Because I was about to say before Brando fucked with it, and I was like, well, but then before Kilmer fucked with it, well, but then before, you know, it's just it's on and on and on and on. Just once again showing how being too worried about having names for a draw instead of worrying about your product being the draw can completely ruin a film. Completely sure. ruin it.
3: I do yeah. think it's important to point out, too, that because when this was made, obviously since then, Stanley has come back to filmmaking. He made Color Out of Space with Nick Cage. And it's good. It's very visually impressive. And you can tell that he got around people. That wanted him to succeed. And do it his way. Because. He, I think other Nick movies Cage he made is sending checks
1: in this podcast. <laughs> like,
3: <laughs> like. Hardware is an excellent movie. Dust Devil is, is pretty good. Um, and Color Out of Space is good. So it's like. This documentary is cool because it, it kind of helped explain the story, but he certainly shouldn't be remembered by this disaster. Um, uh, I, yeah, I think something we left out too was
4: how much he loved like like he even had like an original book of Island of Doctor Moreau. So yeah, shitty that he nobody else was trying to make this movie either, and he like the love of this project, and then he he literally got to watch it through a dog mask, like turned to shit.
1: I'll agree with him that that remake that they had made in the 70s that had a uh, Basil from Austin Powers in it was, was a uh, terrible, terrible adaptation.
3: Bert Lancaster?
1: I believe, I believe so. so,
3: yes. Yeah. And I did yeah, not care bad. for that. Yeah, it's pretty bad.
1: And then, it's, uh, so how do, you, how do you outdo yourself of making one that's worse? Right. I'll tell you how. <laughs> you added in Marlon Brando and Val Kilmer. <laughs> yeah, by the end of it, like, I somehow at the end of it, Val Kilmer comes off as more of an asshole than Marlon Brando.
2: Yeah.
3: Oh, yeah. 100%. Like, oh
1: my God, what a dickhead. Like, I, I hope that Val Kilmer has grown as a person. I doubt and, it. And has changed his ways because
2: what a miserable prick from all those stories. Well, you hear enough stories and like you start to realize that Marlon Brando's mentally ill. <laughs> like, like this yes. is not his choosing.
4: I well that and I like I, I he hates Hollywood. Yeah, and I I, I, I think when people get in, instead of saying no to work, I think he shows up and is like, I'm just gonna completely run your movie. And then his his daughter just killing herself. And didn't his son murder somebody or get killed? That's later. That? Yeah, that was later. Um, but yeah, he's. I don't know that. And, uh, you know, he had already had to go to his house. And uh, there was the weird story, too, where he kept turning the heat up and made the, the producer pass out and
2: um, <laughs> oh, fall asleep. That's right. That's how Richard Stanley <laughs> fell in love with him because that's right. He, Richard Stanley resorted to witchcraft before his meeting with Brando. <laughs> and at the meeting with Brando, they turned up the heat. And so the producer kept passing out so that Richard and Brando could talk without having the fucking suit in the room that would say we can or can't do this and then i think so they became like i heard out. that they, i heard that they got brando they, uh, brando agreed to
1: do it because they made him an offer he couldn't refuse <laughs> So, uh, i
3: was I think, trying uh, to work in a joke from last tango in paris with a finger up his oh, ass yeah. but it just <laughs> happened organically
4: <laughs> what a weird movie they're like uh, a- you want to see marlon brando naked Oh, not that Marlon Brando. This Marlon Brando (laughs) was Um, it on the the waterfront? I could have been a contender.
2: I uh, I I just
4: wonder if his if his behavior would have been a little bit different if if they wouldn't have fired um, Richard Stanley. I, I you gotta.
1: There's so many what ifs with this.
4: So many variables. Which, if
1: it was, then
4: then probably Bruce Willis or Val Kilmer.
1: And I was like, James Woods
4: would have just done a bunch of coke and just equally been bad. He's like, "Where's
1: the cat lady at? I want the cat lady." Just think <laughs> about think about that. There was a time where James Woods was sought after for a movie. <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> well, Well, before his QAnon days. <laughs>
1: All maybe, right.
4: Uh, uh, with Richard Stanley having a resurgence, maybe he can work with Mel Gibson next.
2: <laughs> okay, Lost Soul. <laughs> I would highly recommend this one. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Me too. All right. Now we move on to almost an even stranger tale <laughs> with uh, <laughs> the professor's pick, Tony. Dates and details
4: all right blood and flesh the real life and ghastly death of al adamson uh 2019 and also directed by david gregory
3: yes this uh came out of severin um so my history with this is i learned about al adamson initially based on the filmographies of actors that from the old universal cycles and i was curious just kind of been looking into like Lon chaney uh Jay Carroll Nash these guys that would go in to be in his movies and I was like, "Oh, who is this guy?" And so I learned kind of that he was a pretty big deal within exploitation cinema and then immediately learned about his insane and violent ending to his life. And when I learned about this, there was there was nothing available past like basic articles on a Wikipedia page. So it was something that always interested me and when Severn announced that they were doing this, I was quite excited. So Um, That was kind of the background on this. I'd never gotten to learn much about any of it until within the last year or so. So the story of Al Adamson, besides um, his role in exploitation cinema, um, he basically was born into Hollywood. His father uh, was a Western star out of New Zealand and Australia, uh, Denver Dixon, Um, and so He basically grew up around movies. He was born in Hollywood um, and worked with his dad, which led to him basically venturing into directing. Um, He just didn't do well as an actor and taking instruction. He even says in the documentary he was better with handing out orders. Um, And so I won't go through his whole filmography, but we'll just kind of give some snapshots of of who we're dealing with here. So um, I think a couple of interesting ones to talk about is the journey of uh, blood of G- ghastly horror, which went through, uh, it seems like 20 different versions. This started out as echo of terror and was a vehicle for a singer that he was managing. Um, and they, they kept putting a movie together and it showed some raw talent on his part um, with limited resources but it wouldn't sell they couldn't they couldn't get stuff purchased so they would reshoot it with go-go dancers and center the movie around go-go dancers and this kept happening and happening uh, until they landed um, from on the fiend with the electric brain then blood of uh, ghastly horror and so the basically the theme that runs through these movies is that and i'm clear i want to clarify up front they're not good movies But they're fun. They're entertaining, um, which is what he always harped on, which was making entertaining movies and making them cheap and fast. Um, And so I think if nothing else, this documentary is important because it really makes him more of a household name because we know people like Corman and Castle who reached higher up with kind of that business model and made better films, in fairness. Um, But that's who we're dealing with. Nothing was off the table without Adamson. He um, would inject anything, uh, whether it was relative to the moment and his setting and something that occurred, uh, which leads me to one. I want to mention Satan's sadist, um, which is a call back to the Manson family, which we've covered on this show, which they were filming at spawn ranch. When all that happened uh, around that time. And he talked they well they different crew members talked about how they had the basically the manson family barred from set because they were being a pain in the ass the girls were obnoxious manson was in the way and one of his stunt doubles and actors even talked about you know just kind of joking about being young and stupid not like looking back on who he was manhandling um but yeah so in Satan say that you can see Spawn Ranch because it would burn down a couple years later and that's at the time that the family's living there and what did they do they marketed that around the world with the movie talking about how they filmed it where the Manson family was Um, and so he was always quick to try and make a buck but at the same time he always tried to make the movies entertaining and so you would have uh, ventures into black exploitation Nazi exploitation um kung fu uh, yeah, like it's all there and he w- w- just ripped through these movies he made over 30 movies basically in in the little over a decade um but yeah so i mean i'll go into a few more details but i just i'm curious in your guys' thoughts on his work as a filmmaker if you'd seen anything or if you got a kick out of watching the the reels of him
2: uh i definitely got a kick out of watching the reels of him um, but I don't think I'd seen a single one of his films.
4: Uh, I don't, I, I'm really not familiar with him. Like this, uh, uh when you picked this, this was not on my radar, but, uh, with, uh, the Satan, what was it? Satan's hair lip. Satan's <laughs> Sadus. Uh, after they talked about that, it made me wonder is, is that the basis for once upon
2: a time in Hollywood? Uh, we apologize to all of our friends with cleft palates listening to this. <laughs>
4: <laughs> but with like uh, when they started mentioning the stuntman and stuff, it just made me wonder if it was uh, maybe a small part of a uh, inspiration for, for Quentin.
3: Oh, with with Quentin's obsession with exploitation cinema, there's no way that wasn't a huge influence. I'm sure.
1: I. uh I had seen a couple of his films. I had seen Dracula versus Frankenstein before, and I had seen, um, uh, what was the one that had Angelo Rosito and, uh, Oh no, that, that is, that is it. Anyway, I think that's the only one I've seen. That's the only one I've seen. It, they cut it different ways, but that's the only one I'd ever, I had ever, I think I'd ever seen. I, now this documentary I had seen, I think Brian Blair had told me, he's like, man, have you watched this yet? And I said, no, he's like, man, it's on Shudder. You got to check it out. Then after I watched it, I sent a screenshot over to Wilson and said, have you seen this? He's like, yeah, that's going to be my next pick the next time we do a documentary. <laughs> this is my second time watching the doc. The, uh,
4: the Frankenstein versus Dracula. I, I love that. Uh, I think they might show the artwork first. And I was like, well, that looks awesome. And then he showed the- show parts <laughs> yeah. of the movie.
1: That Frankenstein's <laughs> makeup on the face looks like it is made out of a Nerf ball.
3: <laughs> I was gonna say, it looks like a bad plate of s'mores oh
1: man it's awful <laughs>
4: which which also was the ending uh he rips his head off i was like freddie freddie versus jason ripped that off
1: that frankenstein makeup looked like one of those shrunken heads from the vincent price kit where you dry the apples <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah,
3: I I hadn't seen a lot of the movies. I think I'd seen a couple after my initial interest and maybe on, like, one of those horror packs that has, like, 30 movies for $4 is where I probably watched one of them. But, um, yeah, really the interesting thing, too, with the filmmaking from him is that it also hits that interesting intersection that we talked about with the Manson family Um, that we've, we've got somebody like Russ Tamblyn who had come from West Side Story, The Haunting. This was a major studio success. Who's just doing what he wants. And he's just in these ridiculous movies out here, having fun, coordinating his, his own stunts. He's in...
1: Uh, St. His, St. His, St. Doing Spire, his own dialogue.
3: Remember? Right. And so only at that moment in time are you going to have a Russ Tamblin in an Al Adams Adamson movie. And so it's just this interesting... Just intersection for Los Angeles culture and and filmmaking that he just seized on That basically gave him all these opportunities because he couldn't have made movies that's the difference between him and Ed Wood Ed Wood didn't exist in a time where he could make this work Al Adamson did and that's not to say they're the same filmmaker because I think Adamson was a little bit more efficient with his choices Um, but you also have uh, cinematographers that he's scouting out and working for him, that go on to be massive successes, uh, working on stuff like Raiders of the Lost Ark, getting into award-winning stuff. And they're making these movies with him early on, and it's because he's there at that moment. Um, And so those are a couple movies I wanted to mention. There's also some really interesting stuff uh, with part of their business model was getting a name, a recognizable name in the film. And so what you had happen is, you had guys that we know from old Universal horror movies—three uh, that they cover in here—and uh, Lon Chaney Jr., John Carradine, and J. Carroll Nash. They were in a string of movies back then, and they got them in there for uh, the the name recognition. And so, it's some unfortunate stories, but at the same time, I don't feel like it's it's mean spirited and it's kind of honest in what those sets were like. Um, with you know, Chaney's drinking, he basically lost his voice at that point um and so they've got footage of him you know hitting the bottle Caradine, there's a great story about him just drinking himself to a stupor waking up nailing his lines pages and pages of material and then the minute they cut he's sloppy again and so there's just these very interesting sets there's another story when they had a chimp on set who had grabbed up a a, a short person and taken him up a tree with him so i mean these were just bizarre sets. And before we get into kind of the last act and the, the, the finish to Adamson's life, an important thing about this documentary I think to point out is that they don't shy away from painting him as a saint. They, they really show a honest depiction of him. And I think it encapsulates him perfectly because you will have all these people on screen talking about how he didn't like to pay his bills. But they're saying it with love. They're smiling. They're laughing. They're talking about him. He was just a genuine article. He was just a showman, I guess. Um, But so, so before I jump into the last thing, one other item I want to mention is he met his wife on set. He had originally had a fascination with one of the female stars of the film that didn't pan out. And then he was down at a coffee shop and his server spilled coffee in his lap on purpose. And they, I don't know if it's apocryphal or the truth, but Some say that she did that to get into the movies, and it worked. Uh, Ultimately, she would be in a string of his films, and um, they would be married. And eventually, um, she would pass away in the '90s. Uh, But there's some really sweet stuff in the documentary that shows them as a couple and their relationship and his love for her. Um, So the, the the more after the movies is where we get weird so they mention right up front um not only does he move to india on his own but we also point out that he became very very interested in aliens and i they i don't know if they're pitching it i think they're kind of throwing it in there as a question that some believe maybe it ended his life that led to his demise, or maybe it's just an interesting aspect of his
1: yeah, later phase funny. of
3: life.
1: It's pretty interesting you're watching this movie about B-horror movies, and then we get to a point where they just throw out human-alien uh, hybrids. <laughs> casually, And it's like, oh, right. whoa, whoa, hold on, wait, what documentary are we watching here? We're talking about him meeting an alien-human hybrid now?
3: Right. And I like how... <laughs> The one woman says that she can't really talk about it and then does within 20 seconds. <laughs> Literally spells out what it is. That he met a... Uh, some type of alien that was only half human. Anyways, that's a weird detour that we show uh, before we get to the ending. Um, so, basically, he has a contractor move with him to his home in India who's doing uh, various projects for him to work around the house. Um, and the guy's screwing him and Adamson catches on and, and tells so a few other I'm going to come him. Then he disappears and they haven't heard from him for weeks in particular. Adamson's brother, uh, knows something is up is very worried about it. Uh, the home has, uh, all kind of exterior stuff added and build up around it. And. You know, there's foul play, obviously. And mm-hmm. basically, the brother gets mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. involved. And there's a very, I think it's a very captivating uh, moment in the documentary where the maid, uh, who had been working for Addison, describes taking them to the house. And she quickly realizes that the mattress on his bed is different because she used to make his bed. And she knows that's been switched. And then they go through and they see that where he had his jacuzzi. Which he was very, very proud of. That they point out in the documentary that he had a, a hot tub jacuzzi in his home inside, uh, which was just like his pride is gone, and it's uh, tiled floor now. And you can guess where they said it. Uh, basically, what had occurred is the contractor has struck and killed him, then had the jacuzzi removed and put his body in. It. And covered it up with cement and tiled the floor. And um, it's just a, a wild ending to a life in film that it kind of mirrors in many ways. Um, but I was really glad this documentary was put out because I knew how it ended. I knew about his work. I'd never had much access to any of it. So I was really, really excited and happy with the documentary.
2: It I, you know, like I have read the description and I think I watched the trailer, but like, had I not, like that is just such a random twist. Um, and that that's what really that's what I really liked about the documentary is I mean it's no secret, Vinny and I are famous uh, in our circles of friends for being the documentary weirdos. We'll watch any documentary about unique people and their life stories. And so this will get a rewatch, not necessarily because of like me being a fan of those films, because as I said earlier, I hadn't seen any of them, but because it's just such a unique and and troubling story. And so it's interesting that this guy who was, you know, just regarded universally as a sweetheart, you know, this guy that people genuinely liked, uh, got murdered by his fix-it guy that he hired. Yeah, Uh, And it's even weirder that the Fix-It guy, they, like, noticed that over time he started to dress like Al Adamson. He started to do his hair like Al Adamson and uh, just senseless. And so just weird, just a weird story. And so for that, I'm I'm glad I watched it. I I mean, I'm, I'm sad that Al Adamson was murdered, but at the same time, like, um, made for interesting storytelling.
3: Yeah. And years later now, because of Severin, people are much more interested in learning about his movies because too often situations like this guy are a big deal in their time. And then they're gone quickly. Yeah. And so, uh, my big stimulus present to myself is the, uh, massive box set, which kind of blends in with my background right now. But it has <laughs> over 30 films on it. Um, And it's a trip. It is exhaustive. It's cool. I put on a a handful of them. It's not something I'm trying to marathon because they're not the easiest movies to just burn through. But the documentary really, I think, sets the stage for it. And it's a lot of fun to go watch the movies after you've seen the documentary.
1: Yeah, that sounds cool. I really enjoyed this documentary. I was glad you picked it so I could watch it a second time. It's just... Number one, it's an era of filmmaking, that whole drive-in era, where there was a difference between what was released in in theaters and what was released in the drive-in, a whole different subculture. I always like to hear of filmmakers who did it outside of the box and did things their way. Whether or not it turned out, you know, as bad as the movies are, I still have a lot of respect for Ed Wood because of his attitude when he did films. And it's the same with Al. Um, hard is hard. So, yeah, so I I really enjoyed this documentary. I'm sure this won't be the last time I watch it. I highly recommend it. Awesome.
4: I enjoyed it. I Like I said, I wasn't familiar with the guy. I was not familiar. I mean, if the title would have been just maybe called uh, – I would have just thought it was about his movies. If they didn't have the extended title of his ghastly, uh, death. Um, what an awful land. It, it kind of yeah. reminds me of, um, there's a, like an early two thousands documentary called Gator about the skateboard. Yes, it reminded me a
2: lot of Gator
4: because you're just watching it and it's this cool guy. And then all of a sudden, Hey, he did some acid or something and murdered somebody. Um, so just kind of out of left field almost, um, yeah, if the, if the title didn't kind of um kind of have that included and you weren't expecting something uh, but I'd be honest, I was not expecting that at all. Um No, I, I thought it was cool. Um when when did this happen? Like I I don't know if I missed that or
3: I'd like, have to look up the year. I can't remember.
2: Does um, another it had another Gator feel. Because didn't like Gator murder his girlfriend and then like start bring, like dating a girl that looked like his girlfriend and he would like bring her to parties and like say yeah no that's that's the same girlfriend I had yeah I think so so, so like this guy dressed and acted like Al Adamson.
3: yeah and I should point out since I, I forgot to the the man was caught they tracked him down in Florida uh, because he was using. Adamson's credit cards that he transferred over to himself. I like uh, how he kept there.
1: trying to deny it. Like when they're the interview with him, he's trying to deny it. No, he, he gave me his clothes. He gave me all his cars. <laughs>
3: yeah. Right before he climbed into the concrete in his own floor and covered <laughs> that his I, yeah, up, yeah, that I had torn his up. stuff.
2: He <laughs> wanted me to have them. Unreal.
3: <laughs> but yeah, I would recommend this to anybody. I think, uh, especially, uh, if you're interested in the case or a good documentary, but also if you're interested in kind of getting a just a a beginner's feel to exploitation movies, this is a fun way to do it because Adamson covered everything. He worked with anybody that can that could sizzle it and make some money. I mean, he's even got a porn star. There's a great segment in the the documentary about her. Now she was going to go back to quote unquote funk movies because she was done with that.
1: Yeah, because <laughs> too hard to. The the shooting days were too grueling. Yeah, I got. They I talked guess. about they would rent cars for the chase scenes and then take them back and they'd be click 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 when they pulled them back up to the place they just beat yep. the ever living shit <laughs> out of them to to use them in the movies. And just
3: I like get- Frank Sinatra, he did not believe in a second take.
1: <laughs> I
3: I did like enjoy that. From
4: yeah. the like porn star to like the one of the stars of like West Side Story,
2: right. <laughs> And I can't let it go without saying, I really felt for his like housekeeper who like genuinely oh, cared man. about him, yeah, and, and really like did that, her part to make sure that, that this all added that
1: added the most humanity to it.
2: Yes, the yeah. whole,
1: the, And I also really enjoyed the old uh, cowboy stunt man, who put me in the mind of Bob Gimlin, watching him out there still <laughs> <Yeah>. doing <laughs> farmhand work. Yeah. yeah,
3: it's very true. Housekeeper is <laughs> very sobering to the story.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'd recommend this one. Check it out. Where'd we watch this shutter?
1: Is that where I, that's where I watched it. Uh, Uh, I got it off shutter. Okay.
2: I think it might
1: be on prime too. I think it's It's on on prime. Prime.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah. It's on Amazon. And then, as I said, I've got the uh, gigantic
2: apps box set. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Wrapping it up heading to the fourth film. This one belongs to you, Toddy. Tell us about it.
4: All right. So Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, directed by Roman uh, Chimente and Tyler Jensen. Um, so this movie, um, I, I'm not sure who all in this group did it, but I, I know quite a few people kickstarted this movie. Um and then it just didn't come out like it was supposed to, and, and they kept adding and adding and adding. Um, I have to say, like, uh, I'm kind of glad that it happened that way because um, I, I think it, it made a better uh, documentary for it because it literally, uh, you can tell they took every penny that they got, uh, turned into them, and put it right back into the movie. So um, this is a documentary, though, is... Uh, so Nightmare on Elm Street 2 uh, is notoriously known as the, the gay uh, horror film or the gay for any movie. Um, Mark Patton is the star of that film and um, other than doing a lot of conventions and his work at Nightmare on Elm Street and then he was uh, in the play uh, Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean with Cher and uh, Karen Black. Um, so kind of like a budding actor and then, and then nothing. So this is kind of, um, more his story. And also, um, it talks about a lot of the like homophobia in Hollywood with like, especially the HIV AIDS scare of the eighties and how, um, gays were becoming more acceptable, but then with HIV, uh, you know, it definitely, a lot of actors and stuff, There's no way they were coming out of the closet and, uh, uh, you know and, and parts of this even discusses where if they even suspected you were gay you had to take an hiv test if you were kissing actors and stuff um it, it goes into a lot of his story and um and honestly um this movie that was going to make his career actually kind of um kind of hit the nail in the coffin on that one so um i don't know i think it's a, a, a great documentary and it's uh it's kind of like Mark getting to tell his uh, story. And then also, um, uh, you know, um, Mark's kind of had to put on his shoulders a lot that uh, he did get a lot of the blame for quote-unquote the undertone. um, Gay parts of Nightmare 2, uh, as the director and writer of the film, uh, constantly brushed it off and put it onto his back. That that, You know, they, they denied and they said, would say that the movie was not intended to be
2: that way or written that way. Um, well, I, uh, yeah. I, I never told him to scream like a woman,
3: <laughs> which is absurd because it's like, who wrote in the, the gym teacher getting sm- spanked in the, in the shower? You know, it's just like, there's all this other stuff that has nothing to do with Patton.
4: Well, um, I think, I think that, well, even the bar, cause you know, they're like, well, you know, I didn't know it was a gay bar. And they're like yeah we it was written in the script as transsexual bar so like either other actors were letting shit out of the bag too um,
2: like, did you think it was a judas priest cosplay bar <laughs> like what do <did laughs> you think this was so um
4: yeah i would say like uh it's definitely cool like even like watching like robert england they all, they all knew what they were doing it, this movie gets a lot of shit but i mean really like what movie had the balls to do this, especially, um, was number two, like 1985. Um, but basically Freddie is, is basically, uh, this kid's, um, sexuality trying to come out. And, um, I thought one of the cool scenes, was, uh, cause Robert definitely was like, uh, uh he loved the concept and, um, the scene where he's pulling back in, which Robert said is basically, uh, beauty and the beast but he kept trying to put his glove in Mark's mouth to where the makeup artist glass. was like, yeah, it was like, do not let him put the glove in mouth because it looks like oral sex. Um, but yeah, like I said, I was expecting, um, you know, um, I think we've all talked to Mark quite a bit. There's a lot of a story I definitely did. Now I didn't know about his, um, you know, that his boyfriend, who is the person that gave him HIV, that he was like a big known actor. And, um, that he died in the the 80s and um i don't know basically uh mark kind of like went into obscurity to where uh when they started making the documentary um for nightmare on elm street the um never sleep again yeah never sleep again so uh they actually hired a private detective to locate him uh cuz he was living in mexico and like off the off the grid um so it's kind of cool. I'm glad that uh, it also shows, too, where uh, he had no idea that people were uh, like in love with this movie now and, and him and um, you know, getting to see him go to conventions. and um, you know, he does say that like when he shows up, he's basically becomes Mark Patton, because these fans, like, he doesn't want to like disappoint a fan, which is a little sad, too, there, because this guy's gone through so much shit. And he's, like, worried about, um, you know, making your encounter when he's signing your product. Um, well,
1: maybe he should have a talk with Tom Savini. <laughs> yeah.
4: no that was true. But, um, yeah, so, I, again, like, I, this is something I waited and waited and waited to see. And then, like, the finished product, I mean, like, like they got this awesome score for it, the poster, like, like, everything around. And then when the film started, uh, you know, I wasn't expecting to see all the cool clips from other horror films from the time. So, um, like I said, they definitely um, used everything they could for their budget. And then um, a cool note was that uh, before its release, they uh, part of the LGBTQ plus uh, film festival in Dayton at the Neon that they do every year, they actually put this movie in it and the directors and Mark Patton were all in uh, attendance for the film and the professor and I got to go see that. So, um, so it was kind of cool to see, uh, was, I, I want to say sold out show. I don't think there was any empty seats and yeah, um, um, yeah it, it, it kind of blew my expectations away if I'm being honest. And, um, you know, again, it's like uh, man, just a bummer. Mark's kind of had a bunch of shit like headed his way and um you know Jack Shoulder the director of Nightmare 2 like kind of even mentions like you know man this is 30 years ago get over this shit but like this film hurt Mark's career and um uh, and again for the, for you know um it wasn't acknowledged in the doc as much and I think it's because Jack Shoulder at least came and then um and they were able to talk but both the director and writer have uh have shit on Mark, Mark Patton quite a long time over this movie, so um, I thought one of the highlights was where he actually gets to uh, sit down with the, the writer. Uh, hey, Mark doesn't seem
1: to have an issue with the director, though. Um, I think he seems to be pretty friendly with him. A, I don't I
3: think, think the director's the director. been publicly out of line like the writer has been. The, direct, yeah. the director plays more dumb, but the writer actually was saying how
4: this movie was... Uh, Nightmare 2 was actually... A conversion story of like how um, with the love of any woman any uh, gay kid you know can save himself so um, like he was just known for saying shit like that or, or just outright denying it or even look like how offensive that you're like why well, didn't tell it's not scripted scream like a woman um, and, and you know even the dance scene and stuff um, like it's all in the script so I don't know why the guy is denying it and and then to deny it all these years that when Nightmare 2 actually became more accepted, that now the writer's, like, taking credit for it, that it's, like, a gay film. So, um, I thought it was cool that Mark got to sit down with him. And I think he made his peace with it after it and, um, and moved on. So, um, and then uh, I've actually seen this movie's cleaning up at a lot of the festivals and stuff that it's doing. So, um, because again, I want to say this movie was probably like four or five years in the making. So um, I don't know; it's pretty cool. From from, I think it probably started out as a little something that might might not have even had like a DVD release of it um, to to kind of as as big as it became. So I was talking for a long time and I didn't really stop to to get anybody else's take. So I'll be
3: quiet. I was going to say, I, to echo what Vinny is saying, though, I do think on screen when we have confrontations with the director and the writer separately, Patton handles them very differently. Um, and the, the 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 surprising part about that is the director, Jack Shoulder, is pretty goddamn rude. Um, and he, you know, he I don't want to say he's okay with it, but it doesn't seem to get a huge reaction out of him. And that's where you tell, and I think an interesting dynamic of the documentary um, is that you realize that so much of this is Patton living with it, that this is years and years and years of it manifesting because the writer, I mean, to the guy, both their credit, they at least agreed to sit down on camera and talk with him, which I'm kind of surprised they did um, because usually people won't touch these situations. They want a distance. So, I mean, I'll give him credit for that, but with um, with the, the director, it was very bizarre that he went out of his way to call him back down in front of a camera to tell him he needs to basically get over it. And Patton's like, okay. And I'm like, whoa, like, was that really necessary to get down here in front of the cameras again? To that That's your big reveal? That's what after a night of sleeping on it? that we needed to do this so that was a very bizarre moment but at the same time i think it's interesting that a good but he wasn't wrong well certainly to some he wasn't wrong
1: he wasn't wrong mark did need to get over it he needed to face it and he and it forced him i think to do that and i think at least the way it's presented in the documentary that is what Mark needed. He needed to sit down with the writer, and he needed to get a resolution out of it so he could move on.
2: And if I could play the middleman on this, as someone who counsels people and plays the middleman, it, it's a both-and, right? It's, 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 yes, Vinny, he did need that, but to Professor's point, it wasn't Jack's place to say that. You know well, what I'm it was rather blunt, Yes, and it so he was rather so callous about it. He, he could right. have f- finesse that absolutely, and but he was Mark right. Mark needed to hear that from a friend who had probably been through similar trauma, not not this you know boomer director who's just like, well, bud, you know what? We cleared the air You need to get over it. That's like that doesn't right. exactly work like that. You're you're not wrong, but you're an asshole. <laughs> Right? Yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> You're not wrong, Walter. You're just an asshole. You're, yes. Because because Jack plays so coy about it, and then he's so coy about it the night before, and like, oh, I didn't really know, you know, and 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 again, he gets that some of that credit because he wasn't so outspoken in opposition, but then but that he he was kind of out of line the way he handled it the night. I,
1: I can agree. I can definitely agree with that sentiment. I think you covered it. Mark needed to hear it, and he's right, but he, he was rather abrasive with his approach. <laughs> yeah.
4: Yeah. Which, uh, you know, Jack, the, the director, uh, Jack Shoulder, also never apologized, which, you know, I didn't really pay attention when the, when the writer, uh, David, he actually apologizes for, for anything, any harm that he might have caused. And it was, like, Mark acknowledged, like, you're the first person that has said, I'm sorry, and, and it's not all your fault. And,
2: um,
1: and do you feel movie? like that that apology was kind of a well? I'm sorry if you were offended.
2: Oh, <laughs> that yeah. That you was the I mean? point. That was the point I wanted to make. It was, it was a very half-assed apology. It was. I agree. It was. It I wasn't I'm sorry for what I did. It's. It was. I'm sorry if you perceived what I did, and that's what we're seeing. I mean, it's. It lines up with what's happening with Marilyn Manson right now. It's back to Harvey Weinstein. Of like, oh, I, I didn't really. Do that, but if you feel like that's how I came off, I'm sorry for that. In, yeah. In the Mark's credit, though, he knew that that was the line.
3: Yeah. He got him to say it on camera. Anything past that's just going to worsen it again. Well, and,
4: you can tell, tell how uncomfortable he was, even on like like David kept looking at the camera, like oh shit. Can
1: Can you imagine being in that situation as either one of those guys with cameras on you? I can't.
3: Yeah. (laughs) yeah, Balls all around on that. And
2: and this is where um, I'll say a few more things about Mark here in a minute, but but this is where Mark gets to call checkmate because Mark gets to take the high road. Mark gets to be the person of mercy, grace and forgiveness and say, you know what? That's good enough for me. Like that, that takes a bigger person all around to say you know what you said you're sorry i can i can accept that that's what because I'm,
1: he 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 could have held his feet to the fire and said well no that's a half-assed apology yeah
2: exactly he absolutely could right and, and nine and, 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 out of
3: ten people making this documentary would have done that yeah that's nine what out makes 10, mark different
2: yep nine out of ten directors would have pushed mark to done that you know what i'm saying like This is where Mark shows how much of a class act he is and how much of a lovable person he is, is because he says he he errs on the side of forgiveness, even when the apology is not as full as it should be.
3: Yep. I agree. Somewhere up there behind Vinny's uh, free autograph from him.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Not not true. His name is not on it. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's true. (laughs) I, uh, And that takes me to, I, Nightmare on Elm Street is my favorite horror franchise. I do not like part two to this day. I've tried to give it second and third chances. I just don't like it. It just feels separate to me from the rest of the franchise. I don't, I feel like it just doesn't quite fit and it doesn't have anything to do with any of the, the, homosexual undertones or overtones if you will none you of that is what bothers me about it i don't like the freddie at a pool party where the kids are bigger than him uh i, I just don't like the approach in this one um, i think there's some really cool visual effects in it i think freddie never looked scarier uh, i don't think there's anything wrong with mark's performance it's just i don't care for the script that's where my issue is with that i just don't care for the script um this documentary I like way better than Nightmare on Elm Street too. This documentary number 1 it gives you an insight into an actor that that me personally, I don't know if everybody's the same, but I just didn't know much much about Mark Patton uh other than what I'd seen in Never Sleep Again. So it was cool to to hear what his story was and he has lived a very interesting life, but the the thing at the end of it that stuck with me is I was very impressed with Mark's outlook on life and where he landed at the end of all the bullshit he's been through is he he ended with the not a lens of why me oh why me but instead was like well there you know there's a reason why I was out of the spotlight is because I couldn't have been sick in the spotlight and had my name run through the tabloids and all this and that. So that's why it happened that way for me. And then at the end of it, I got to come and I got to enjoy the fame from this, you know, and meet all these fans. So I really am by the end of it, was so impressed just by Mark's outlook and how he perceives things that have happened to him and how he, his understanding of the whys they have happened. And he almost seems thankful for the way they things went now. And I'm glad to see a person get find peace and those kind of things. But it's just nice to see somebody who didn't end things and not that things are over for him by any means, but by the end of the documentary, uh, had ended things on a positive note. And and really the only one who was responsible for making it a positive note was was he himself. He's the one who had the ability to either go Hollywood bitter for the rest of his days or, like you say, take the high road, accept the apology, and, and make peace with it. And so I really enjoy that aspect of the documentary, and I, and I hope that that is truly the case for Mark Patton because he really deserves it.
3: Yeah. Definitely. And that was why it was a neat experience when we saw it at the, the neon, because it's like we got done with that. And then it's like, oh, let's go hang out with him and the directors in the lobby. And it was I mean, it was a really neat experience. And it also kind of helped elevate what that movie meant to so many people just by listening to the Q&A at the beginning. Um, yes, stuff that I can't relate to as not only somebody who was a little bit younger when it came out, but as a heterosexual but it's very interesting and meaningful to me to listen to people talk before the movie and have them introduce it. And I think it lived up to everything I hoped to would be and far exceeded that. And I agree with everything I, I, you just I also, said. It's a neat piece.
1: I also, uh, it tickled the Hoosier in me to see scenes from Horror Hound
2: Indianapolis. Yeah. The very Definitely. same. The very same where we got him to say, fuck you, Vinny, on camera. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you got
3: a great picture with him. Yeah. Uh,
4: the, the the timing of watching this, because uh, I don't think I've um, I don't think I watched it since it was in the we saw it in the theater. I hadn't either, um, so it was only the second time of viewing it. And uh, man, it, it I loved watching it, and then loved all those scenes. But it, it almost saddened me watching the convention stuff and um, actually seeing like Shauna and stuff in it, and just. Uh, you know, not being able to do any of that stuff right now is a little saddening. Um,
1: Were you excited to see our very own Hot Toddy in the credits? I was, <laughs> was Mark Patton? Um, something else that I, I like about
4: this, though, that uh, you know, I think I think everybody latches onto horror films for different reasons, but I think a lot of gay people latch on to it because, you know. Uh, Again, the screen clean angle, which, you know, marks a rarity, but, but even all the females, it's like, it's like the outsider. And uh, something not talked about a whole lot, but you would think that it, the horror community is pretty loving and stuff. But there, there is a lot of homophobia in, in the horror community, which is sad. Um, it's actually really came out in the last, uh, the last year or so with uh, our uh, political climate that we've had. Uh, and it's amazing how a lot of the people you did not think would be that way, uh, are, are pretty homophobic. So, um, you know, I think Mark kind of touches on that too, is not only, you know, Hey, this is a gay person that we all know, but, um, he mentions too, that he, his I, I idea of doing these shows was to, you know, show up and meet people and then come out as HIV positive. So also people know, Hey, uh, hey, I do know somebody that is living with HIV. Um, so, again, like, his outtake and stuff's cool on it. Um, I am trying to think of his name, and I can't, and it doesn't really matter, but um, Bill uh, also goes... You'll, you see him at a lot of conventions, too, but he actually opened up about how he came really close to killing himself. Um, <laughs> and then, <you> know, finding <laughs> and stuff was, like, a, like this outlet um, that kind of helped him, so... Um. Yeah, this this documentary was like way more than I was expecting. So, so great job.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's a great doc. I think I think this is probably It's like, probably the third time I've watched it, but
1: I can't second for me.
2: Yeah, I can't recommend it enough. I agree. Okay, good, good, good. What a what a round of documentaries we had this evening. Good, good choices all around. Good choices all around. Nicely done. Well done, gents. Well, all right. We're wrapping up another uh, installment of Horror Documentaries, one of the newer formats we're doing here at the Midwest Monsters Podcast as we try to keep things fresh. I'm one of your hosts, Grizzly Adner, and I've been joined by Professor Wagstaff, Venomous Vinny, Hot Toddy. Stay scary, friends.